Today's episode of Your Stories is sponsored by Cards Against Humanity. They asked us not to read an ad, so enjoy the show! Your Stories is a wonderful opportunity to share all the highs and lows of being a nerd. You know that hobby you have that you don't talk to anyone about? It's a secret you don't like to share because it might make you feel weird. Maybe you're into something different. Uh, comic books, fantasy football, push-ups. Your Stories, to me, has been this really kind and welcoming space where people just have the guts to be really honest and they share their voices and their stories with everyone there, no questions asked. Uh, I've heard stories about all those things. Uh, maybe not not a lot of push-ups. I maybe haven't heard a lot of stories about push-ups. The Nerdalogs is group therapy meets Toastmasters. I know there's always a place where my odd thoughts and unusual habits will be welcomed and championed in a warm, supportive environment by other nerds just like me. And what's fun is you'll see people in the audience one month, and then all of a sudden they uh, go up and tell their story. So your story becomes their story, and their story is your story, and then it's our story, and then it's a podcast, so it's everybody's story, and then you've shared it, and gosh, that's great, huh? And even if you don't think you're a nerd, you probably are. It's easily the most Midwestern thing I've ever been a part of. Hi everyone, I'm Eric Erno, and this is a special Nerdalogs Presents Your Stories podcast that continues fanfiction February 5 for just one more week. Did you know that it's still February? We have that kind of power now. It's pretty rad. We won't abuse it, probably. Um, so there were a couple people who weren't able to make it to our live show in February who really wanted to share pieces, and they asked if they could record them for this podcast anyway. And, of course, I said yes because I'm cool like that. So today you're going to hear tales from Vanessa Wililko and Marnie Thompson and also me. Uh, I tacked on a story at the end that is my only published piece on fanfiction.net uh, for real. So let's get into this. Uh, starting first with Vanessa Wilco, who brings us a harrowing tale of young Muppets and their wicked captor. They had no idea how long they'd been locked away in that room. Weeks, months, years, it was impossible to tell. They were so malnourished that they hadn't grown much during their confinement. They spent most of their days acting out fantastical stories like traumatized Bronte sisters, so it was hard to keep track of time. These babies, these Muppet babies, were being held captive by a woman known only as Nanny. She was a mystery woman, mostly neglectful, occasionally tyrannical. One of her rules was that they never look at her face. The only one who ever tried was Animal, and she beat him so severely it was doubtful he'd ever speak in complete sentences. Since then, no one dared raise their gaze above her knees. Just the sight of her green and white striped socks put terror in their hearts. For the past few nights, Piggy was trying to organize an escape. I don't know, Piggy, Kermit said. I mean, it's not so bad. Not so bad, Piggy exclaimed. Look at Animal! Upon hearing his name, Animal said, Animal, he has permanent brain damage! Damage. You listen to me, you spineless amphibian! I'm destined to be a star, and I can't get famous stuck in this room! Calm down, Piggy, Fozzie said. What do you get when you combine stress and high blood pressure and aneurysm? 
Waka, waka, waka. Piggy glared at Fozzie. You hack! The only one who laughs at your jokes has a traumatic brain injury. All eyes fell to Animal, who was trying very hard to bite off his own foot. Kermit's right, Gonzo said. It's not so bad. We get to play all the time. We get fed when Nanny remembers. The mention of Nanny sent Beaker screaming, Meep, 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 until he passed out. Okay, Piggy, it's bad, Kermit said. But what are we going to do about it? We'll escape, Piggy said. She doesn't even lock the door. But she'll come after us, Gonzo said. And then she'll beat us for sure, Fozzie added. Do you want to be a bunch of babies forever? We'll just make sure she can't chase us. How will we do that? Kermit asked. Piggy had been waiting for this question for days. We'll use our imaginations. We'll pretend she's a big elephant rampaging through town. We'll hold her down so she doesn't destroy anything. I'll put a pillow over her face so she can't get mad at us. But Piggy, won't that hurt her? Kermit asked. You can't make an omelet without breaking some eggs, Piggy said. Anyway, when we're bad, Nanny punishes us. Nanny's been bad. It's time to punish her. The rest of the Muppets started expressing their doubts, and Piggy was growing ever more desperate. She had dreams of singing with Dolly Parton, of winning beauty contests, of tap dancing on stage, and riding real motorcycles. And none of that could happen in this room. Piggy was about to karate chop everyone into submission when she realized that no Muppet can resist a song. <clears throat> in olden days, when folks were mean, they used to get the guillotine. Now it is a modern time. There's a new way to deal with crime. Smother her in her sleep. We'll hold her down. She won't even weep. Smother her in her sleep. Then we'll all be free. After hearing the song, the rest of the Muppets were more doubtful than ever at first. But Piggy just kept singing her song over and over until it wormed its way into their heads like a brain parasite. Soon she'd whip them up into such a bacchic frenzy that they nearly charged out of the room. Wait a minute, Piggy said. Remember, elephants have big ears. We have to be quiet so she doesn't hear us coming. It happened quickly. They descended on Nanny, pinning her arms and legs under the blanket. Piggy sat on her neck and pushed the pillow over Nanny's face until long after she stopped moving. When Kermit finally pulled Piggy away, she was shaking. When it was done, they gathered what few possessions they had. Gonzo grabbed his plush Camilla, Fozzie his teddy, and Rolf his baby piano. Though they said not a word, they each silently vowed that no matter what capers they got into, whether they took Manhattan or traveled to space, they would never again speak of their time under the tyranny of a striped-socked nanny. Up next, we've got Marnie Thompson, who kind of abstractly fanficked her own life with a series of short stories and later comics that she worked on in high school and college called Early Winter. Uh, I was talking to Marnie about this, and she said... High school students don't necessarily face a lot of adversity, so we had to invent some. And here is that invention. Uh, this is the Early Winter Slasher Special. Early Winter is a line of stories and characters that I came up with in high school based on uh, my friends and me and uh, some different adventures that I wish we would have had. Chloe uh, is our heroine, um, paired with her best friend Mofo um, and Elle. 
and then Joaquin is the uh, French exchange student um, that Elle is pretty interested in. Jim is Chloe's boyfriend. Boaz is Mofo's love interest, but he's very uh, oblivious to any sort of romantic uh, feelings she might have towards him. And then Ben and Megan are another friends of the group. So this is our early winter slasher special. Here we go. (laughs) Chloe walked in her dorm inside. Her roommate asked, hey, what's up? Excited for Halloween? Chloe stared at her and slowly, simply said no. Why not? Halloween's great. Ever since Halloween last year, it's always been ruined for me. Chloe lay down and thought about the past year's horrid events. Their senior year in high school, Chloe, Jim, Ben, Megan, Mofo, Boaz, Elle, and Joaquin decided to rent a cabin in the woods over Halloween weekend. It'll be fun, Mofo had said. So creep and crap, but in a good way. Everyone agreed, so they packed their bags and headed out to in Jim's Jeep and Elle's Jetta. The cabin was about four hours away, up in the deep woods of Wisconsin. When they got there, another car was waiting in the dirt path leading to the house. They didn't even have time to wonder who it could be before a slim blonde girl with dark roots growing out stepped out of the car. Tiffany? Elle exclaimed, dropping her hands in the wheel. What the hell is this skank doing here? Joaquin, I can't believe you. You invented this STD-infected betch? Elle stopped the car, took out her duffel bag, and stormed into the house, not even noticing the strange fact that it was already unlocked. Everyone stood out in front of the house, looking between Tiffany and the cabin that Elle had disappeared into. Boaz leaned over to Joaquin and said, Hey, bro, that was some pretty schmucky thing of you to do. Well, we all know I will get some tonight. Oh, ha, ha, Joaquin laughed. They walked into the house to find two bedrooms, mm, rather four bedrooms, two bathrooms and a kitchen. Wow, we sure lucked out. This place has just enough room, Megan said. Yeah, it's sweet. Where's Al gonna sleep? Tiffany said. That night, everyone is outside having a bonfire. Or almost everyone. Uh, hey, where are Joaquin and Tiffany? Chloe asked. Ugh, I don't want to know, Mofo said, disgusted. Boaz and Jim offered to get up and look for them while Ben was toasting marshmallows for himself and Megan. They walked into the dark cabin and heard noise from the bathroom. Oh, how familiar is this, Boaz said. He ran in to see the shower curtain half-closed and Joaquin sitting in the tub. Joaquin opened his mouth to say something, but Boaz closed his eyes and turned on the shower, yelling, That ought to cool you down. Jim was standing outside the bathroom door, laughing when Boaz ran out. Shortly after, Joaquin stepped out, soaking wet, right on his shirt. What? Boaz and Jim took a double take. Tiffany, she's dead, Joaquin said, tears running down his face. She was in the shower, and I wanted to surprise her. And when I walked in, the window was open, and she was against the wall, water and blood running down her back. I found this knitting needle in her back. He held up a bloody golden chrome needle. And that's not even the best. Her hair, all gone. This killer, how you say, scalped her. Oi! Boaz ran back into the bathroom to throw up, took a look at the scene again, then turned around and ran out the front door. Jim brought a shaking Joaquin out to the bonfire. Everyone looked at him incredulously. This is definitely not the smooth, put-together Frenchman they knew. Noticing the blood, Megan jumped up. Oh my god, what happened? Jim said, I believe we have a homicidal scalping maniac on our hands. Everyone stared at him. What? And where's Boaz? exclaimed Mofo. He's out front, puking from the sight of Tiffany, Jim said. Alone? We have to get him. No, wait, we don't know if the guy's out there. We'll go find him, Megan said and grabbed Ben by the wrist. Aw, Ben said and dropped his marshmallow stick to the ground. They left to go out front and find Boaz. Soon, 
Chloe, Jim, Mofo, Joaquin, and Al heard screams, then a crunching of leaves, then complete silence. The group left the fire and all ran out to the front of the cabin. Boaz staggered around the corner of the house and met them at the side wall. "'What was that? And where are Ben and Megan?' Al screamed. "'I, I saw the killer!' Boaz gasped. "'He looks like Bigfoot or something. He kills with knitting needles, and then after they're dead, he scalps them and takes their hair!' "'But where are they?' Chloe asked, frantic. Boaz looked over his shoulder and toward the front of the house. There lay Megan and Ben, her head on his stomach, bloodied and bald. Even from a distance, the holes in the back of Megan's shirt were visible. "'He took the needles this time,' Boaz said, staring. "'I was only able to escape because I jumped in the bushes when I heard footsteps. I'm pretty sure it was him.' "'Let's get out of here. Seriously. Three people have died already. Within twenty minutes,' Chloe said. "'How?' Jim said and pointed to the car. "'This guy must be Bigfoot. No one could do that with their bare hands.' They looked over at the car and saw knitting needles sticking out of the, I- the tires of Elle's car. and noticed all of her other tires were deflated as well. Well, we should use these against him, Joaquin said and pulled two of the needles out of the front tires. You fucked hard, Mofo screamed. What the hell are you doing? We'll never get out of here now. She sat down and started to tear up. Boaz sat down next to her. Aw, Mofo, it's all right. We'll get out of here fine. Just stay calm. Oh, what was that? He jerked his head quickly to the right to look at the bushes around the house. Oh, uh, sorry, I just really had to pee. There wasn't another place, and I didn't really want to go inside alone, Jim said, shrugging. It's it's getting late. Um, do you think we should go to bed? Elle said nervously. I guess so, Chloe said. There's really nothing we can do but lock the doors and figure out a way to get out of here. They all walked back into the house, and Jim shut the door firmly behind him and made sure it was locked. Boaz dragged a chair over to the door and put it under the doorknob. Uh, Boaz, you know, just... Placing the chair like that isn't going to do anything to keep anyone out, right? They put it like that in cartoons. You have to actually, like, push it against the door. Joaquin made an exaggerated yawn. Well, now that we are done here, I think it is time we go to bed, oui? And held out his arm to Al. Fuck you, asshat, she said, hitting his arm and running back to the bedroom. The rest of them could hear the lock click behind her. Uh, that was pretty shitty, man. What do you seriously think she would do after you brought Tiffany here? Jim asked Joaquin. I don't know. I guess I go apologize? Okay. And he walked toward the door. Ah, mademoiselle, my love, my soul, please. I am so, so sorry. Forgive me? Soon the door opened and Elle let him in. Huh, Chloe said. wonder why she did that. Soon the remaining four heard bed springs squeaking. Whoa, those guys don't waste any time, Mofo said. Um, don't you think that's kind of weird for Elle to be doing? Well, I mean, it does seem weird, but, oh, she's been always kind of pretty forgiving, Chloe said. Soon, Elle left the room, fixing her hair, and passed the group, getting herself a glass of water. Hey, guys. Um, Chloe, would you mind terribly if I slept with you tonight? Elle asked. Uh, Chloe looked over at Jim, who looked uncomfortable. I don't... We'd be delighted to have you, Elle, Moaz, Boaz said with a smile. Mofo turned and looked at him, jaw dropped. What happened to Joaquin? Mofo questioned her. Oh, well, he was getting kind of forward, and I didn't really want to be around him. Who knows what that Tiffany's infected him with? Ha ha! She laughed a strange, empty smile with a fake smile. She laughed a strange, empty laugh with a fake smile stretched across her face. Late that night, Mofo woke up to a strange sound. She turned and noticed Elle was gone. Hmm, maybe she made up with Joaquin. Or out! Ha! She thought to herself. Mofo noticed a rumbling in her stomach and decided to make herself some peanut butter crackers. She lifted Boaz's arm off her stomach and got up. She walked into the kitchen and saw Elle leaning against the counter. Hey, Elle, uh, what's up? 
Elle looked over at Mofo sadly, and she noticed Elle was holding a small serrated knife in her hand. I'm really sorry, Mofo. I don't have a choice, though. She hit Mofo over the head with a frying pan, and in her last moments of consciousness, Mofo noticed her hair being grabbed. Chloe heard noise coming from the kitchen and decided to check it out. She walked out and noticed Mofo on the ground, hair cut close to her head messily. Oh my god, Mofo! She shrieked and held her hands up to her face. She checked for a pulse and found one. She started crying out of relief and picked Mofo up under the arms and dragged her to the living room. She lay her down next to the couch and went to wake up Jim. Jim, she burst into the room. It's Mofo. She's knocked out and her hair is gone, just like the others. She left him and went next door to wake up Boaz. As soon as she told him what had happened, Boaz rolled out of bed, landing completely on the floor. Oh, my dolls, he said, gripping his one hand to his face, the other reaching for Kleenex. He stuffed a tissue up his bleeding nose and ran to the living room with Jim. Chloe ran into Joaquin's room to tell him. There, she met a horrifying sight. Joaquin was lying on the bed, if you could call it that. The top layer of it had been stripped away, and many of the coils were snapped with a wire cutter and bent straight up. Joaquin had been impaled. Upon closer inspection, there was dirt and bits of hair on his shirt mixed with the blood. Chloe was stunned, frozen to the spot, and could do nothing but stare. She then screamed. Jim and Boaz had gotten back from moving Mofo from the floor to the couch and ran into Joaquin's room. Did someone jump on him? Jim whispered incredulously. Oh, Joaquin! Boaz ran out to the sink and ran out to the kitchen and threw up in the sink. He came back to the room and said, Where did Elle go? Chloe turned and looked at him. You're right, where is she? We better find her, come on. Jim took Chloe by the hand. Jim and Chloe left to look around the cabin and outside while Boaz went back to the living room and sat on the couch by Mofo. He placed her head with its cropped hair in his lap and suddenly her eyes opened and she gasped, Boaz! Mofo, you're okay! Boaz, it, it was Elle! She did this! She hit me with a frying pan, Boaz! A frying pan! She then paused and reached up to feel the hair that wasn't there. Screaming, she jumped up to look in the bathroom mirror where bo- Tiffany's body was still in the shower. Meanwhile, outside, Jim and Chloe were searching the grounds for Elle. Where do you think she went? And why would she leave without us? Chloe asked. No clue, but I was just thinking about Joaquin. I mean, she was the last one in there with him, remember? And then we heard the bed squeaking, and we all thought, you know, but what if she was the one to do that? Chloe stopped and stared at him. Jim, I know what you're saying, and it makes sense for you to be suspicious of her. Sure, she likes Joaquin, dislikes Joaquin, but I don't think enough to brutally kill him like that. And anyway, how could she do all that herself? There's no way she could get those springs in the bed up like that. She must have had an accomplice. I mean, who killed Tiffany and Ben and Megan? Chloe got a chill and decided it was time for them to go back to the cabin. They got back to a fully conscious mofo who told them about the frying pan. I don't care if the tires are full of knitting needles. We'll get back somehow. Let's just try to drive the car. It's got to be somehow drivable, right? Maybe. I can't believe that jackass Joaquin, Mofo said, frustrated. Jim went back to the room and found Elle's keys in her bag. That's weird she'd leave her stuff, but okay, he thought to himself. They grabbed their bags and headed out to the car. The car ride was bumpy, and no doubt the Jetta would not be in use again until it had some serious work done, but it was good enough to get them to the nearest gas station. Boaz and Jim went in, ordered a taxi, and told the man behind the counter to get the police over to the cabin as soon as they could. The man assured him that he'd do so. Boaz looked at the man's very unusual sweater, a mix of colors ranging from a platinum color to a honey to a dark brown. That's a very interesting sweater you have there. What's it made of? Mohair? Oh, I wish I could afford mohair. I make my own sweaters. 
This one is actually partially mofo hair and smiled a very uncomfortable smile at the boys. As they backed out of the store nervously, Jim was almost positive he saw a blonde teenage girl in the shadows of the back room. The end. <laughs> so this is a story that I wrote in uh, in 2005. Like uh, According to the internet, published January 20th, 2005 on fanfiction.net. So I was well into college at this point. I was a junior and I had just kind of gotten into Neil Gaiman's Sandman, which is obviously amazing. And a few months prior to me writing this, Gaiman had revisited his world because his story had ended years ago. But he went back to Sandman to do this one-off graphic novel called Endless Nights, where it was like seven stories. Each story focused on one member of the Endless, which is like this family uh, of like personifications of things that happen in reality and they all start with d so like destiny dream is the star of the series typically death despair desire etc and uh there's like two panels in the dream story that had this really kind of interesting bit of trivia because it's it's set in like prehistory like before there's any actual life it's all like abstract life and all of the endless and like all the celestial beings are having this like parliament and uh despair the, uh, the endless known as despair is talking to Rao and DC comics readers know that Rao is the name of Krypton's son. And so despair is telling Rao, uh, let me find the actual panel here. She goes, think about it. Rao wouldn't bringing life onto a planet that is inherently unstable. Add to the beauty of the life. If at any moment it could explode, truly it would only be perfectly beautiful. A perfect piece of art. If one single life form escaped to remember, to mourn, to despair, and clearly, you know, Despair is talking about Superman. And I thought, fuck, that's cool. Like, Gaiman is basically seeding the origin of, you know, the world's greatest superhero in this one-off story. And so even though I was in college at this point, I was still decidedly uncool. And I'm like, you know what? I'm going to write that story. And reading back, like, there's some stuff in here that's a little silly. But I don't know. I, I think on the whole, like, it's not that bad. So the one other thing you guys need to know about it is that... Um, the endless are kind of replaceable, like as their aspects, they exist permanently, but different kind of beings can fill, uh, those aspects roles. It's very confusing and it's meant to be, but like, so for instance, throughout the series of the Sandman, we follow the aspect of dream known as Morpheus. And then Morpheus dies in the series, spoiler alert, and, uh, is replaced by a, a man named Daniel. So we don't know that much about despair, but it's alluded to in the Sandman series several times that there are two despairs. So that's important to know. Uh, also, this is heavily based on... Boy, there's a lot of preamble here. This is heavily based on the classic Alan Moore comic story for The Man Who Has Everything, which has been adapted into a cartoon episode, an episode of Supergirl. It's one of the most famous Superman stories. Uh, I pretty much describe what's going on here, but if you're not familiar, I would Google for The Man Who Has Everything, because that is the basis for this. So with that said, let's get to all the stuff that I wrote. So this is Glimpses of Despair for The Man Who Has Everything. Once Upon a Time... Once upon a time, three people went to Antarctica in order to wish their friend a happy birthday. These people were called Bruce, Diana, and Jason. Jason worked for Bruce, and Bruce and Diana were co-workers, along with the person whose birthday they were celebrating, who went by the name of Clark. 
except that Diana wasn't really a person because she was made out of clay, and all of the above-mentioned people went by at least two different names on a regular basis, so calling them Bruce, Diana, Jason, and Clark is really only telling half a story. But that doesn't matter so much, really. So, Clark, who unlike Diana did qualify as a person, was still not really a typical person. He was an alien, from a world long since destroyed, and he had traveled the stars. As such, he had met many other individuals, and some of those individuals wished to join in his birthday celebrations, even if they lived quite far away. He had a means of dealing with this, of course, for Clark's intelligence was, it is fair to say, above average. But anything undertaken out of goodness can be exploited. And Clark was a being who, some might say, was pure goodness, and as such he himself was quite easily and often exploited. And, as he had been to many stars and many worlds, Clark had made many enemies as well as many friends. One of those enemies was a being named Mongol, which is the name used here because he, unlike our other friends, really only has the one name, except of course that people would give him derogatory swears as names quite often, as he wasn't very nice. And Mongol, knowing a little something about Clark's past, gave Clark a birthday gift in keeping with his alien lineage, a symbiotic plant, the Black Mercy, which gives its host entity a dream of whatever its heart most desires. A punishment that doesn't sound entirely so bad, except that the host knows that what it is experiencing is merely a lucid dream, which he or she can end at any point, and it is in this fact that the torture lies. But the workings of the Black Mercy had a habit of attracting unexpected guests, and so it was that Clark, Mongol, Bruce, Diana, and Jason were joined by several others that day. But, it is fair to say, those others remained in the shadows, and even fairer to say that those others were shadows themselves. In the dark corners of a long-dead world bathed in red sunlight, Morpheus the Shaper stands and observes. He is joined today, unusually, by his sister Despair. Despair is a short, fat, naked, and altogether horrid-looking personification, and Morpheus never looks the same way twice, so why describe him here? You have your own idea of what he looks like, after all, and you are both always right and always wrong. Why are you here, Dream? Despair chokes out the words as though each syllable scrapes a thousand nails against the back of her throat. This is her usual speaking style. Since the germination of this species of plant, it has fascinated me, my sister, Dream whispers, for all his speeches whispers, and, like him, quite formless. The black mercy induces waking dreams in its host, and these are somehow always different than usual dreams. For instance, they always manifest as precisely what the host desires. Yes, they are tainted with aching. Which is, I assume, why you are here, my sister. It is rare indeed that you visit the dreaming. Yes. Despair nods her confirmation and intently watches the Black Mercy's prey in his dream world. The prey, whom we have called Clark, is known as Kal-El here, and his world is not dead. Indeed, it is as alive as ever, in a way. And it is Cal's birthday, and his lovely wife and children have thrown him a surprise party. Our friends, shortly after discovering Clark reveling in his gift of the Black Mercy, were caught off guard by the appearance of Mongol, who was, as far as they knew, an uninvited guest at Clark's party. Diana and Bruce, though, quickly overcame their surprise and entered into a discussion of party etiquette with Mongol. Jason, however, just watched amazed because that's what he always did. Mongol explained to Bruce and Diana Clark's situation, that he was in the midst of a dream of his own devising, and that of course he could free himself if he wanted to, but who would want to? Bruce and Diana did not like what Mongol had to say, and Diana in particular disagreed with Mongol on several aspects of his behavior, causing the two to engage in a spat. Meanwhile, Bruce and Jason tried to get Clark to leave his newly given Black Mercy and return to the party, so he too might mingle with Mongol. Bruce didn't really see the harm in it, 
After all, Clark was merely trapped in a dream. Reality awaited him, and reality was much more important. A beautiful black raven has come to perch on the shoulders of Morpheus, who watches Kal-El argue with his father about the future of his planet. It is an interesting development, Morpheus notes. Why should Cal argue with his family in the land of his heart's desire? Despair says nothing. She just relishes each moment. The raven, however, is more verbose. Hey, boss. Hadn't seen you around all night, and I thought I would come check up on you. What are you up to? I am watching, Matthew. Our subject is dreaming, although it is against his will. He experiences precisely what he desires most, and yet not. Oh, I get you. Crazy endless crap. Matthew shakes his head. Wait a minute. Holy shit! Isn't that Superman? Hard to recognize him without the big red S. Matthew? You know, the Man of Steel? Earth's greatest champion? But then, where is he now? He is dreaming of his home planet. Whoa! So this is what the big guy dreams of. His lost home. Guess I can relate. But you said this is against his will, huh? Yes. Neat. I bet it's some psycho supervillain plot. I hope Superman kicks his ass. By now, Mongol and Diana had finished their spat, albeit halfway across Clark's place of dwelling, with Mongol, whose counterpoints had proven quite destructive, emerging as victor. His point proven, Mongol then decided to make his way back to Bruce and Jason, because, after all, there was still a party to be had. Bruce, meanwhile, was getting ever closer to pulling Clark's interest away from his spectacular new gift. Clark was about to return to the party, which was now in Mongol's hands. So why is your sister here? Matthew throws a glance at despair, who was now so enraptured in Kal-El's dream that she could not even hear him if she wanted to. I must confess I am not entirely sure, Matthew. My realm often brings glimpses of my other siblings, desire certainly, as well as delirium, destruction, despair, and death. Yet they seldom feel compelled to come themselves. Hmm, Matthew considers. You know, I wouldn't mind being an endless. I think it would take an eternity to figure you guys out. I could write a book. No one would read it, though. Except Loosh. Dream puts his finger to his mouth, or shifts the manifestation of his abstract presence enough so that Matthew sees it as such. Quiet now, Matthew. This is the part of the dream that is most interesting. In the distance, on an abandoned road of a planet tearing itself to pieces, Kal-El tells his son that he is not real, and in fact, neither is his planet or his life. Kal tells the boy that he must return to the waking world now, because it needs him. The boy doesn't understand. He needs Kal too. But Cal is a conscientious man and cannot allow himself to live in a dream as much as it was precisely what he had desired. And as each tear falls from the boy's eyes, the hair on Despair's body begins to rise. And with each of the child's plaintive cries, Despair begins to tingle. And as Cal-El tears himself away from a world that he has never really known and wants nothing more than to embrace with all his being, Despair experiences the closest thing to an orgasm that one of the endless can have. Excepting, of course, desire who might be described as the embodiment of orgasm. And not for the first time, and not for the last, although perhaps most devastatingly, Krypton dies. And, thanks to Bruce's coaxing, Clark finally returned his attention to the party. Unhappy with Mongol's thoughtful, but in the end unwanted, birthday gift, Clark proceeded to throw Mongol out of his house. The details of this debacle have been related elsewhere. Suffice to say that through a rather clever use of the Black Mercy by Jason, Mongol got to experience Clark's present for himself, and this left him so content that it just took the party right out of him. Morpheus observed several other dreams caused by the Black Mercy before moving on for the evening, including one in which a young boy's father saves himself and his wife and child from being murdered by a thug, and one in which a large yellow man enslaves the entire universe. The former is quite interesting but brief, 
and Morpheus makes a note to observe the dreamer again. The latter is boring and predictable, but then few would-be conquerors ever have very interesting dreams. Despair lingers on in the memory of Kal-El's dream for several moments longer than Morpheus, choosing not to join him in the other mercy dreams. Morpheus again notes that his sister's interest in the last Kryptonian is an oddity, but as it does not really pertain to his own domain, he leaves it be. Thus, after several moments in the final mercy dream, Morpheus returns to his castle at the heart of the dreaming. It is long before another black mercy dream occurs, and, as it is a good deal less interesting than Kal-El's, it does not bear telling. Despair, reliving the explosion of Krypton again and again, gives her best smile, which could most accurately be described as a not-quite frown. She realizes, vaguely, that she has just viewed the culmination of the cosmic movements of the first entity to bear her name. Sadly, she is the only one to remember the first despair, and even that memory is incomplete at best. Still, she takes pride in the work of her position. It is a thing of beauty. The last member of a dead planet, forever reminded that, for all his efforts to the contrary, he is alone. But despair cannot be happy in this, for she is despair. Thus, fleeting pride is all that is allowed of her. She wonders if the first despair would have been happy. Then she realizes that this is not a topic she is allowed to dwell on, and, her predecessor's memory already fading into obscurity, she exits her brother's realm, feeling perhaps emptier than when she entered. At the remainder of Clark's party, everything was, to put it one way, pretty quiet. The experiences of the day had cast a bleak haze over Clark's dwelling, but, as so often happens at these things, a few bits of awkward conversation were wont to rear their ugly heads. I never want to go through that again, said Clark quietly while eating his cake. Jason looked up, somewhat intimidated to speak in the presence of his boss's most famous co-worker. But, I mean, it was just a dream, right? Bruce interjected. Sometimes, Jason, I think that dreams are more terrible than even death. When I faced Mongol today, I was not afraid. But I'm never really ready to close my eyes at night. Jason, feeling summarily shot down and a little frightened, returned to his cake. There was a bit of silence, and then Clark spoke up again. The worst part, though? The worst part is that Mongol enjoyed what he did to me. He loved every minute of it. He knew that I was in a perfect dream and would have to choose to leave it behind, and he knew how much that would kill me, and he loved every minute of it. I must admit, that is the part I don't quite understand, Diana said. Mongol is a terrible creature, yes, but who can get any kind of happiness out of so much despair? The End your Stories is a proud part of the Chicago Podcast Co-op. If you enjoy Your Stories, you might also like Open Ended. The vulnerability behind the glass with a side of sass. This radio show seeks the people behind the screens through stories that intersect technology and culture. For more info on Open Ended, visit openended.fm. This has been a Nerdalogs production. If you'd like to help make more things like this, please visit patreon.com slash nerdalogs to donate today. And go to www.nerdalogs.com for more cool stuff. Thanks for being awesome. Thank you all. Thank you all. I am Grabbot23548X.